0: I'd like to welcome you again to today's August Ask the Expert call. Now, without any further delay, I'd like to introduce your host, David Molman with Align Technology. David, you now have the floor.
1: Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us on today's Ask the Expert webinar, Understanding and Managing Posterior Open Bites with Dr. David Gates. You'll earn two CE hours for attending today's program, and you'll receive important instructions on how to obtain your CE certificate at the conclusion of the presentation. Additionally, CE hours will automatically be added to your Invisalign doctor side account. Please allow two to four weeks for C hours to appear on your account. Please note you're able to listen to today's program via the webcast and throughout the webinar you'll have the opportunity to ask text questions which our presenter will answer at the conclusion of the presentation. I apologize in advance we're unable to answer everyone's questions since our time is limited, but we will follow up after the program to answer any outstanding text questions. Today's program will be archived in its entirety one week from today on the education tab at your Invisalign doctor site where you may also access archived versions of all of our previous assay expert programs, any time CE hours. It's now my distinct pleasure to introduce today's speaker, Dr. David Gates. Dr. David Gates has been treating Invisalign patients in Las Vegas since 2001. He maintains a private practice focusing on cosmetic, reconstructive implants, as well as Invisalign treatment. Dr. Gates lectures throughout the US, Canada, and Central America, and conducts numerous study clubs as well. He's a graduate of Marquette University. I would now like to turn the presentation over to Dr. Gates. Dr. Gates, you now have the floor.
0: Welcome all this morning. We're glad to have you with us on this uh, webinar. And I uh, greet those who are watching it on archive in the weeks to come. This will be my 13th year working with Invisalign and teaching on the faculty uh, will be my 11th year. And one of the uh, things that I've learned over those years with many doctors is this problem of posterior open bites. And I'm hopeful that I can add to the body of literature uh, that's going to be taught. And I'm hopeful that this will make sense to you after we talk about posterior open bites in our seminar today. Now uh, one of the things that I've done is had many study clubs where I've been able to uh, visit with doctors and tell them about the ways to solve posterior bites, and then I'm hopeful that today we'll be able to do that. Okay. Uh, David, I'm uh, frozen on my uh, advance. Can you help me with that? There we go, I can do that now. Okay, I also want to add a disclaimer here that uh, the views that are expressed are my own and they've come from these 13 years of experience and I hope that they're helpful to you, but uh, I take responsibility for what we talk about today. Okay, the question I'd like to ask is, has your case ever finished with a posterior open bite? Have you ever had that experience? Many doctors, when I ask them to raise their hand in a study club or class, identify that they have and many that they don't. So, I ask this question Has it never happened to you? Have you checked to see if at the end of your case all of your molars and bicuspids are hitting? This fellow didn't uh, realize that it uh, happened to him when he was treating this case. But at the end of the case, none of the back teeth were touching.
1: And uh, here's another
0: example of uh, open bite at the end. You can see that at the beginning it was a cross bite, but at the end the teeth were all. Uh, open, no contacts in the back. And uh, this is an example of the first case that had happened to me. And I thought it was a great case until I realized that he had no contact on his posterior teeth behind the cuspids. So I want you to be aware of that problem, not only at the end of the case, but I'd like you to be aware of it during the course of the case. And one of the ways that you can constantly be checking that is to use shim stock. I use large shim stock on a hemostat. I put it back in the back and have the patient bite on that to see where I have contacts. Now, I normally do that at the beginning of the case also using articulating paper and a shim stock because I want to know if there are any teeth that don't touch at the beginning of the case. That way I'm aware of those and I can manage those as they need to be managed and move forward with that. Now in order to solve this problem, I think there's two things that we need to understand. One is what causes it and what are the consequences of it. So I'm hopeful that we can discuss both the causes and the consequences of posterior open bites, because our job as doctors is to diagnose correctly, make sure that we understand what's happening in the mouth. It's a complicated thing, and many times there's many factors involved. So I'll ask these several questions. What causes posterior open bites? If we understand the cause, we can better treat it. And secondly, what are the consequences of it? Can't we just leave it? Do we need to do anything about it? Suppose the case is all just hitting on the front teeth and not hitting on the back teeth at all. Can't we just leave it? Will it stabilize on its own? And if we give it enough time, will it get to be where we want it to be? I think those are some useful questions for us to discuss today. And so let's go back to the causes of posterior open bites. What's really causing it? I have heard some doctors in seminars say that it comes from intrusion of the molars. Those molars are intruding because we're wearing the aligners 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I've heard that. Have you heard that before? And some say that the solution to that is to cut off the ends of the aligners and let the teeth super erupt. Is this so? I think those are also valuable questions because I hear that very frequently. Let's look for a second at what the consequences of the posterior open bite are. What are the consequences? Now, I'll give you a couple of them. One is the instability of the anterior teeth. If the teeth are doing all of their occlusal forces, all of the stops are on those anterior teeth, what can we expect from those anterior teeth as a response to that? We can expect them to be unstable. There can be perpetual looseness of the teeth, migration of the teeth, frenitus or you never get tight contacts around those teeth because the teeth are continually hitting on those whenever they close. So those are some of the consequences that make it worth not having a posterior open bite. There's also possible eruption of the posterior teeth. You get to decide whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, whether or not that's the case. But let's take a look at that issue of the forces that would be necessary in order to get unintentional molar intrusion. That is to say, intrusion that happened by accident. What forces would be necessary to make molars intrude, especially if the patient wasn't aware of it? Because when we expand, the patient can feel that. When we extrude, the patient can feel that. When we intrude anterior teeth, the patient can feel that. So I would submit that there's some Forces that would have to be required to make those molars intrude. One is that we would have uh, interocclusal forces. You'd have to have forces that are much greater than regular chewing forces, because regular chewing forces don't intrude natural teeth. So you'd have to have forces greater than those. The aligners show evidence of this kind of force, either by distension or malformation or wear spots on the aligners. Uh, does it happen at night? Is the patient aware of this during the day? If it only happens at night, could all eight molars and, and all eight bicuspids intrude with forces that are so gentle, yet so forceful, the patient's unaware of them? Forceful enough to intrude teeth greater than chewing forces, but so gentle the patient doesn't even know they're intruding. And does the patient wake up fatigued? Have they been putting such enormous force on those and be totally aware of it? unaware of it, and then that's how those teeth are intruding. Okay, so where did the idea of molar intrusion as the cause come from? The idea that the aligners are the ones that are pushing those molars, and where did that idea come from? And I would ask, is that just an old wives' tale? Wow, it looks like the teeth are intruded. It must have been the aligners that pushed them up into the bone. Is that an old wives' tale? And if it isn't an old wives' tail and molar intrusion—I mean, if, if it isn't uh, if it is an uh, old wives' tale and molar intrusion is not coming from the force of the aligners, then where is it coming from? Those are the cause and consequence issues that I'd like to spend a couple of minutes on. And I'd like to share with you that there are at least five, perhaps others, but at least five main reasons why you end up with posterior open bites. And in a moment, you will see that none of those five have, have anything to do with molar, posterior molar intrusion. What you're actually seeing is premature anterior contact. It's premature anterior contact. It's the front teeth sitting first before the back teeth and get together. And you'll see why that's very prevalent. So, let's review five causes of premature anterior contact. Number one, most human beings, not all of course, but many and most, have usually more crowding on the lower teeth, and that lower then requires more proclination than the top. So if you only have a little bit of crowding on the top and a lot of crowding on the bottom, the clean check is going to give you more proclination on the bottom than it is on the top, and the overjet then becomes eroded. Now, take a look at these two arches. You have the upper arch, and there's less crowding and the lower arch and there's more crowding. And so what happens in the ClinCheck? Watch the side view of this ClinCheck and you'll see how much more proclination is on the bottom. I've given you the most extreme example that I have in my library of the difference between proclination on the bottom and the top for the use of the example. But it doesn't have to be this much more to cause the same problem. If you have more proclination on the bottom and, and less proclination on the top, then those front teeth have a very high likelihood of hitting early and not allowing the molars to come together. So here's an example of that. There was proclination on the bottom, and this is not a protrusive picture. This is a regular centric picture, and in this case, because of the proclination in the lower arch, the patient is now hitting on the front teeth and the back teeth don't come together. That's one of the reasons we have posterior open bites. It's got nothing to do with molar intrusion. It has everything to do with the front teeth being in the way of each other. Let's look at a second reason that you have premature anterior contact. The second cause of it is the failure to intrude. That is to say, instead of your overjet being reduced, in this case, your overbite is reduced. and so the depth of that overbite because the teeth did not intrude as far as you hoped they would, they are still hitting on the front and the back teeth are not able to come together. Here's an example of that. Let's supposing that the dotted line represents where your case began and you want to intrude these lower teeth. And the hope is that by the time you get to the last aligner that your teeth will look like this. We've shallowed out that curve of speed a significant amount. Now I've got a big space between where the teeth were and the teeth are supposed to be. But in reality, they didn't quite make it there by the last liner, and they look more like this third picture. That is to say, they're not as far down as the ClinCheck anticipated they would be, and so now where are you hitting? You're hitting on your front teeth that are supposed to be lower and more intruded, but you can't get them there, and so now you're hitting on the front teeth and your back teeth are not coming together, so you have a posterior open bite. It has nothing to do there with the intrusion of the lower posterior teeth or or the posterior teeth. It has everything to do with the failure of the anterior teeth to intrude the way they were supposed to. So if lower anterior teeth have a difficult time intruding, then of course you can imagine how much difficulty or force would be necessary to intrude. 16 molars and bicuspids. Okay, now here's a photograph that shows one tooth that is lagged behind. Uh, Failure to intrude a single tooth is very easy to spot. What takes a little concentration and observance, looking carefully through that magnifying glass, if you will, is what it looks like when four or six anterior teeth uh, fail to complete their intrusion. That's a little harder to spot. You've got to be aware of that all the time, checking with your shim stock and looking at the before and after and comparing the patient's bite to the clin check. It's a little harder to spot. So, so it takes us some effort to do that. Those are two causes of premature anterior contact. Let me give you a third reason why you have premature anterior contact, and that is the collapsing of the arch. Now collapsing of the arch means, is a way of saying lingualizing the arch. And the more you pull in that upper arch, the more your overjet will be eroded. On the first one, it was pushing the teeth far out was causing the problem. In the third one, it's bringing the top teeth in that's causing the problem. Basically, two variations of the same problem, reducing the arch, one from the bottom, one from the top. And uh, anyway, uh, the second one, on the collapsing of the arch, I'm going to show you a couple of pictures about this. Now, watch this ClinCheck, and you'll see how this works. You've got these uh, teeth that are lingualizing, and the ClinCheck calls for um, five-tenths of a millimeter of IPR in order to make that happen. That's a negative example of an arch that's collapsing. And I, as a rule, make sure that I rarely, rarely collapse an arch. If a patient comes with very buck teeth and a very large overjet, then it's totally appropriate to collapse that arch. That's what they're looking for, and you have room to do it. But as a general rule, collapsing the arch will produce posterior open bite. Now, here's an example of... There's another example of the same thing. We're distalizing a whole lot here, and we're going to take those anterior teeth and push them way lingually. That's obviously problematic in the same way that I'm describing. Now I'm going to show you this concept that I often describe to my patients. Occlusion is like a lid on a box. That's what I say in the consultation. Your upper teeth are like a lid on a box. They're supposed to be bigger than the lower arch. They're supposed to go over the top of it. And if your lid is too small for the box, if the lid is the same size as the box, that's going to cause some trouble. If the uh, if the lid is smaller, if the lid is smaller than the box, it's also gonna cause some trouble. That will all be a problem in both cases. Okay, so uh, the uh, example I have here is this one right here and that is uh, we've got a a box and that's the occlusion. That's how it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be uh, bigger than that and the patient understands that. So if your Invisalign treatment is taking that lid and making it smaller than the lower arch, that's going to cause problems and the front teeth are now going to be touching first and the back teeth will not be touching and that's how you get that first year open bite. Let me show you another example of that. That same sort of collapsing of the arch, it's problematic, okay, and a fourth example collapsing the arch. All of those are to be avoided whenever possible. Okay now this example is one that you're obviously going to want to uh, take care of for the patient. They come in and they say they have a diastema and uh, the diastema is a problem. But the question in my mind before I can treat that is how much overjet do I have? How much space do I have between the upper teeth the lower teeth. Well, let's take a look at this area right here where we've got the teeth touching. That's a functional zero overjet. The lower teeth are already touching the upper teeth. It doesn't matter that the incisal edge is away from that lower tooth, it doesn't matter that eight is, has got overjet, but it doesn't have any functional overjet because the lower tooth is touching it right there. And so that's a problem. And so now watch this Clincheck. check. As these teeth come together, they lingualize and burn away what was already a zero-over jet. The lower teeth were already in contact. And as those teeth come together, they lingualize some. And so now we're touching the front teeth and not touching the back teeth. Okay. So that's the third reason. Here's the fourth reason that you have premature anterior contact. And that is that you have a tooth size discrepancy. There is space around laterals that are smaller than they're supposed to be for the size of the arch. And because you close those, you eroded the overjet. Now, there's lots of patients that come in, and they want that space around those small laterals closed. And what would many dentists have as a dialogue? Sure, I can close those with Invisalign, and you can. You can close that arch right down. You can collapse that arch, and that becomes a problem. Okay, so let's look at a couple of pictures related to that. It means that the laterals are too small for the arch, and they have space around them. And you request, in your ClinCheck prescription, that they close the spaces. Okay, that makes the arch too small for the lower teeth. The same sort of thing. You're collapsing the arch on account of closing the teeth for those two laterals that have tooth size discrepancy. Now here's an example of a patient who had those small laterals. And let's take a look at what his teeth look up close. closely. You can see that those laterals are too small for his arch size. And so the normal tendency would be to close all the spaces. Take a look at this check. Instead of closing the spaces, they redistribute the spaces and leave them behind the laterals so that those laterals can be restored to their proper dimension. So now we're not going to squeeze that arch together or collapse it, otherwise those front teeth will hit first and the back teeth won't come together. This shows the comparison between a smaller arch with smaller laterals and a larger arch with larger laterals. If the laterals are smaller than they're supposed to be, then you should make them the proper size rather than closing the arch. Otherwise, you do a great disservice to the patient. Now, the patient doesn't understand all of this, of course, and so you're going to have to be explaining it to them to let them know that those are too small. Okay, so now this is a restored version of that same case, with those two laterals now being the correct size, rather than being being left to their smaller size. So what happens to the arch? It doesn't collapse. It doesn't take away the overjet. It doesn't then have your anterior teeth touching and the posterior teeth not touching. So here's this patient before, and then here he looks much better because the dentist did do the restorations and gave him the correct size, and then when he was done, he ended up looking like that. Very nice case. And because he didn't collapse the arch, he didn't end up with a posterior open bite. Here's another example. I'll give you three of those so that you have a little variety to look at from different kinds of cases. This patient had very small laterals, as you can see, and so the check then calls for the space to be created rather than for the space to be closed. Here's the photograph before with those small laterals and just a very tiny space between six and seven. And then you see as the arch expands rather than collapses, space is created around there so now we have space around there now you can you can leave the lateral or teeth in the middle of the space if you want most of the time i'm going to put the lateral right against the centrals so that when i restore the propella that's more visible between the centrals and the laterals more visible than between the laterals and the cuspids is a little bit more natural doesn't have any shadowing there so i'm hiding that shadowing by putting it a little bit more distal so normally i'll put those laterals against the uh, centrals and leave the entire space distal to the laterals. In this case, it's, it's a, a distributed equilaterally. Now here is the picture of him before with the small laterals, then a clean check took us to a full size arch, and here's the picture with some more natural laterals in the size that they're supposed to be. There again, you have small laterals, you get a smaller arch. You get a big, the normal size laterals, you get a correct size arch. And so then you're not collapsing the arch on account of squeezing the teeth around the laterals. This is a third example that you can just see this little tiny uh, laterals, and instead um, uh, instead of shrinking down the arch and closing the spaces around those, they were restored. In this case, not veneers, but composites. And uh, much more healthy arch, no posterior open bite on account of premature anterior contact. Okay, now the fifth reason that I want to mention is uh, you approved a very tight overjet setup, no room for error. I'm sure that you're aware that the orthodontic model is a very tight overjet, tighter, say, than a restorative model when I do a reconstructive case or a cosmetic case, I'm going to have more room for anterior guidance than what we normally think of, say, as a denture setup. And yet the orthodontic model is closer to the denture model than it is to the restorative model. And so I have to approve uh, a setup in ClinCheck that has room, that has more room, room for anterior guidance. So in this case, this is an example of a check that was set up with a very, very tight overbite overjet. And the, re- the result is that there's very little room for error. So this is sort of the catch-all of the other four, is that when you uh, approve a very tight setup, you don't leave any room for this movement discrepancy that sometimes happens where there's a slight difference between what the check predicts and what the mouth actually does. So you're building in error. What I have to do is build in uh, space in the opposite direction. I will build in a little extra overjet, recognizing that when I, at the end of the case, I don't want any overjet, but in order to get zero overjet and not have a posterior open bite, I have to build in a little extra overjet or build in a little extra of this and that as I go. Okay, so that was the part of the fifth thing. You approved a very tight overjet setup. There's no room for error. So those are the five main reasons that you have premature anterior contact, the reason that your teeth don't close at the back at the end of the case because the front teeth are in the way in some way. None of those have anything to do with your molars intruding into the bone or sufficient force to cause that to happen. So let's go talk about management of that. If we understand what causes it, then we can be on a prevention mode and be watching the case. Now, during the treatment, can you fix an open bite while you're in treatment?
1: No, you can't.
0: There's no way to fix it with the aligners that you have, because the aligners are creating movements that are creating the you know, interior uh, collisions that are preventing the back teeth from hitting. So there's no way to fix when you're in the treatment. Now, because it's a fairly complex problem, it's going to require a fairly complex solution. And of all of the solutions that I can give to any of the problems that are associated with treating orthodontic treatment, the one that I'm going to suggest to you is probably got the most management associated with it. The, the uh, if you will, the, uh, the annoyance factor of trying to fix something that's caused a problem. So I'm not about to give you an easy fix. I'm about to give you a comprehensive fix. But before you can get to the fix, You'll only have this problem a few times before you manage your cases differently to avoid them because you'll know now what's contributing to those. So since you can't fix it during treatment, let's go back to the old wives' tale. And that is, can you fix it by cutting the aligners and letting the teeth super erupt? Is that a legitimate solution to this problem? And my answer to that is, maybe. Maybe that could be done by like cutting the aligners. That's a very simple fix for a complex problem. Will it work? Maybe. Does it work all the time? Absolutely not. So, if you're thinking that a good idea is to cut off the back teeth, the ones that are, that are not touching, and solve it that way, before you do that, I'm going to invite you to ask yourself four questions about super eruption. Now, take a look at this photograph and you'll see that the uh, doctor has cut off the aligners and left the aligners around only the front six teeth in hopes that those lower teeth will all migrate down into occlusion. That's what the hope is by that concept of cutting off the backs of the aligners, and you might cut it off two molars only, or a mol- two molars and a bicuspid, or even two molars and two bicuspids. But in any case, you're hoping that the guilty, Uh, separated teeth will super-erupt down together. So, before you do that, before I answer the question, can you use those aligners, I'd like you to ask yourself four questions about super-eruption. One, how big is the open bite? How far is it open? Sometimes it's very, very slight. You can judge that by using your shim stock. You can judge that by using articulating paper and seeing which teeth are touching. How far apart it is, in the example I just gave you, they were substantially apart. Some of them are not so far apart. So the first question is how far open is it? I just did an adjustment yesterday on my hygienist who was in Invisalign before she moved to my practice, and she had a posterior open bite that was unilateral. She only had it on one side. Well, it turned out that she was only getting four posterior teeth. So we did some strategy associated with allowing those to come down a little bit, and then I adjusted slightly, and it was very easy because it was very slight. So how big is the open bite is the first question. Second one, where is the premature anterior contact? How many teeth are touching? I've seen premature anterior contact on some patients that have come to my office under various circumstances that have as little as three anterior teeth touching, two central and a lateral. That's a very significant problem that's greater than having all the anterior teeth and four of the bicuspids and one of the molars touching. That's an easier problem to manage when there are more teeth touching and fewer teeth are not in contact. So that's the second question. Third question is, when you see a super erupted tooth in a patient, does the gingiva follow the tooth or does the tooth ever get longer, right? That's a kind of a significant question, right? is that when you see an erupted tooth in a patient that's not an Invisalign, does the gingiva follow the tooth or does the tooth get longer? And you've seen it in both ways, haven't you? You've seen super erupted teeth that have three, four millimeters of exposed root that's not covered with the gingiva anymore on account of how it's super erupted. And the fourth question I would ask is, would you want your own teeth super erupted if they had not intruded? Would you want your own teeth super erupted if they had not intruded? Okay, so let's look at those questions and then apply them. If it's a tiny opening bite, a tiny open bite, then cutting aligners might just work. A Tiny open bite, you can try that. And if it's slight, I would try that first because you're talking about a quarter, a half a millimeter, a very slight amount. If the contact's on the cuspids or the bicuspids, it also might work. If it's on the centrals or laterals, it probably won't. And it's a lot of fussing around when you're not sure whether it's going to work because you're taking the patient on a course that may not be in their best interest. So I tend to very, very rarely use that little trick. And of course, after I've learned what uh, is causing it, I was able to go into prevention mode. So I rarely have this particular problem because I'm putting into application some of the things that I'm going to show you in the next few minutes that I hope will be helpful to you. Um, And third, do you know how to correctly equilibrate an occlusion? If you know how to uh, correctly equilibrate occlusion, then that's much more preferable. Some doctors are very skilled at that and know exactly what they're doing, and other doctors have never adjusted occlusion in their career. And so it's difficult to say, well, you just equilibrate the occlusion because they don't have any reference or bearing for what what that involves and how to do that. But if you can identify in a centric relation position exactly what is the interference, that can be an easy way to adjust that if if it's a minor open bite. Okay, so let's go to the hard part. This is the part that we like the least, is how to fix it once it's open because this takes a little bit more effort than you're used to because there's not a quick fix if you have a significant posterior open bite. It requires reworking the case, and I would like to rewar- remind you or, or warn you right now, you cannot fix this simply by sending in for refinement. For many reasons, but I'll explain some of those. But let's talk about how to fix it when it's open. There's some steps. First, you must make sure that the check that you send in matches what's in the mouth. You must make sure of that. That means that if you have an open posterior bite, the ClinCheck must have a posterior open bite. You cannot have a ClinCheck that doesn't duplicate what you have in the mouth. And communicating that to the technician does take some effort. You have to have an open bite in that ClinCheck. Otherwise, your check means nothing. If your check comes back and it's closed, you don't have a check that's even worth talking about. Won't this happen automatically? If you just take impressions and send them in, won't they automatically reproduce what's in the mouth? And my answer to that is no, they won't. And that's because the program is not designed to do that. What it's designed to do is by default, it closes the bite into the best occlusion that it can find. So you have to take charge and control of making sure that clean check matches the mouth. It be, can be different than that. And it, won't ha- it won't happen automatically. Okay, so I'm going to show you the five steps to get you back on track once you discover at some point that you've produced an open bite. Now, the longer you go and the more you see this through your eyes, the less you'll let it get severe because you'll see it happening. From the early stages. That's one of the reasons you have the patient coming every six weeks or so, is to identify what's going on to check the posterior bite to make sure that the movements are taking place the way they're supposed to go. Okay, the first step that you're going to do is you have to measure the open spaces interclusally. Because you're going to have to communicate these to the lab technician. Now, if you're taking a scan, and statistically about one out of five doctors is now doing a scan, that should measure and produce your open bite. So this problem is much easier if you're doing a scan because the scan will correctly mount the teeth the way they are in the mouth. The, the, the scan has that open bite. If you're taking impressions, and four out of five doctors are taking impressions, then you have a little more work to do because you have to do this yourself because the, uh, the iTero is not doing it for you. So I, so an easy way to do that is that use an interocclusal gauge. Right. That's a gauge that's used for measuring the space between your crown prep to make sure you've given the lab technician enough room. And uh, so you measure the space, and it you put it between the teeth. And all the teeth that are open, you can measure. And it's obvious. Uh, oftentimes, it's going to be one and half of a millimeter, which is one of those little rubber fingers. The next one is one one uh, millimeter. One is one and a half. It goes half, one, one and a half, two, two and a half, three. Those are the widths of those. Uh, those. And So you can measure between every tooth. I write that down on a little piece of paper. I tell the technician where the spaces are between tooth number two and number 31 and number three and number 30 and number four and number 29. And so I'm measuring that space because I have to make sure that, that you have to make sure that the clin check shows the actual condition of the mouth and you can't fudge it by closing those back teeth down. Here's another version of those interoclusal gauges that come in a smaller packet than the one that I have used over the years that has all six of them. These are just individual ones. So your job is first to measure the space interacusally, then you take perfect impressions or a perfect scan. And your job is to create as little need for editing as possible. The last thing you need is for them to digitize what's already open. So you want to take flawless impressions, really nice ones or a perfect scan, so that there's as little need for editing as possible. So if you're using the uh, impressions, you're gonna take perfect impressions. If you're using the scan, you're just gonna make sure that there's as little need for editing as possible so You have the cleanest scan possible. The third thing you're gonna do is you have to communicate the interaclusal space and ask for perfect mounting of the case with the open byte. And I just use a little sheet that says how much space there is between that and I put that right in the box. And the first time I ran into this problem years ago and tried to uh, understand how to solve it, very often, even though I put the sheet, into the box, it would still come back closed. And so I did, I, I learned to not only put in the box, but also send it to the records. i, I send a scan of it to the records so that they'd have that. And oftentimes then I would have to get back on the phone with them to make sure that was the case. So once you get the check back, you have to notice the discrepancies between the mouth and the clean checks. You have to look at that very carefully in a way that you're not used to looking at. That is how much space is there between them. and The grid is very helpful for that. You can adjust the teeth in the grid so you can look between the teeth and get a guesstimate of how close they are and are those posterior teeth open the way they are in the mouth. And now that we have ClinCheck Pro, there's the added tool of being able to see where the occlusal dots are. So when you take that open bite impression, you can mark those dots on your photographs and when you send your photographs and you'll have your occlusal dots in there and you can make sure that they match. Now that's a, that's a process that most of the doctors are not used to going through be being so precise because they rely on the computer, they rely on a line to make sure that it's mounted correctly. But the computer doesn't know that you have an open byte. And so you can't get around the making the assurance that your clin check actually matches what you've got. So then you go back to the computer, study that over, make sure that it all matches. And then at the end, you review the clin check, sorry, you if it doesn't match exactly, then I recommend that you call the clinical hotline and a line and speak to one of the orthodontic supervisors at line. They are very anxious to help you. And they will help you out a lot, and you'll explain to them what you've got, and you can take really good side view photographs, but that mounting difference with the interfusal gauge is very helpful to make sure that the space is correct. It doesn't do you any good to go any further until the check matches what you have there. Now you've got a mouth that's got a posterior open bite and you've got a ClinCheck that has a posterior open bite. Now you're ready to do the real work of your planning. Once you're sure the ClinCheck matches the real bite, then you make sure that the ClinCheck does not have supereruption of the molars. That is to say the aligner is not trying now to supererupt and close that space. That's very counterproductive. And that's the very reason you didn't use the aligners cut off to allow secondary super eruption. So make sure that your clin check doesn't show, oh, we're going to pull these molars out of the socket, we're going to pull these bicuspids out of the socket. That's the last thing you want. And then plan the clin check to avoid any of the five reasons you got into premature anterior contact in the first place. You have to avoid all of those. So you're going to ask at the beginning, not for supereruption, but any combination of four movements. You're going to ask them to procline the uppers. That's going to pull them out of the way of that collision. Or retroclining of the lower aligners. That's going to pull you out of that collision. Or you're going to ask for intrusion of the uppers. Or you're going to ask for intrusion of the lowers. Any of those four combinations are the ones that are going to produce the results that you're looking for. Those four, which are the hard ones. Well, intrusion of the maxillary teeth and mandibular teeth is harder than proclining and retroclining. So if you can favor one over the other, that would be good because those are the two tough ones. Okay, so when the aligners arrive, what are you going to do? The patient wears the aligners as usual, and what's going to happen as those movements take place, the intrusion, the proclination, the retrocline, and the intrusion? Your patient's occlusion is going to drop back into its correct position. That might require uh, creating some spaces for sure, or IPR for sure, or intrusion for sure. But once the front teeth are out of the way, they'll be back in their correct occlusion. You can appreciate going through this sort of poop jumping will prevent you from ever making that mistake again, because you'll understand what the dynamics are and not allow it to happen, because you'll be aware of it in your screen check. Once they get back into occlusion, now you're back at a starting point. I told you at the beginning, I'm not going to give you a super easy, simple answer for this problem. I'm going to give you a comprehensive one. Then you discard the remaining aligners. Your occlusion is back the solid occlusion on the posterior teeth because now you don't have interferences on the front. And now you begin a third clean check, one that's going to get you out of trouble the way the first one gave you. You're going to have less upper lingualization. You won't allow the, uh, the arch to collapse. You're going to leave more spaces, such as around the laterals, and you'll use restorations. You'll you'll wise up. You'll see that it's not in the patient's best interest. In order to do that, uh, if you're, you you don't want to keep um, lingualizing or closing those spaces, okay. Then the you might do more IPR on the lower. You weren't anticipating doing that, but you have more crowding on the uh, on the lower, so you, you might build in more IPR into the lower, or you might include more intrusion on the upper and the lower. Okay. Now, that's the solution to get back out of of the mess, and it depends on how significant it is, how long you've waited. But in any case, those are the five steps to get back on track. Now, let's talk for a minute about how to avoid open contacts in the future, and I'm going to talk about the obvious one, and then two extra tools before we conclude. Avoid the five causes of premature anterior contacts, when you're setting up your occlusion. Secondly, use overcorrection tools, which I'm going to show you in a moment, and then understand what's sometimes called the crest. That's the turning around point where teeth go from moving buccally back to moving lingually. Understand the crest. We'll talk about that in a moment. Okay, so here are the five reasons you got into trouble. The first part: more proclination on the bottom than the top, and your overjet was eroded. Secondly, you had failure to intrude. The overbite was reduced. That's why you got there in the first place. You collapsed the arch, and the ClinCheck did, and so your overjet was eroded. You had a tooth size discrepancy problem, and you closed the spaces rather than opening them and then restoring them, and then you approved a very tight overjet setup. There was no room for error, and then the front teeth were banging, and the back teeth were not. So any combination of those five factors, which are variations on the same basic theme of losing overjet and overbite, are gonna cause your front teeth to touch and your back teeth not to touch. Okay, so let's talk about this principle of overcorrection. The dial goes past where it's supposed to go. Let's look at a couple of examples. Now, the definition of overcorrection is correction beyond what is needed or customary, especially when leading to an error. This, in this case, doesn't lead to an error. It leads to good things because you ask the aligners to push further tooth was really supposed to go. Why? Because sometimes the tooth doesn't go as far as it's supposed to. Let me give you a couple of examples of this. There's three different kinds of overcorrection. One is C-chain overcorrection. C-chain overcorrection means that you just squeeze all the teeth at the end of treatment. Now, a second one is single-tooth overcorrection. The C-chain overcorrection is the full arch. Single-tooth overcorrection is one tooth and then multiple tooth overcorrection. All of these are valuable tools that ought to be in your arsenal, and especially to solve the problem of of preventing premature anterior contact. Let's look at a couple of these individually. First, first, the C-chain aligner for overcorrection. What happens here is you'll see that these teeth resolve in their crowding. This is a hinge effect for eight and nine. Then they squeeze all together. At the very last second, you see this last squeeze. That last squeeze is just to keep the teeth from being out of contact. You wanna make sure there's good flossing contact between all of those. So what happens is that tooth then goes out, they all straighten out while there's space between them so there's no collisions and they come back together, close the space and then squeeze it a tiny bit more. That's how the C-chain overcorrection works. There's the process of squeezing all the contacts tight. And I recommend these at the end of every case including those where you didn't do any IPR. Let me give you a second example of a single tooth overcorrection. This is not the full arch. This is just one tooth being asked to go further than it's supposed to go, like building an insurance, so that you have more aligners. You don't run out of aligners before you run out of correction. Here's an example of that. Tooth number 25. This is actually an extraction case, so she only has three incisors, we'll call this 24, but it's between 23 and 26. And you'll notice that at the end, it's actually um, intruding further than it's supposed to go. And the reason it's intruding further than it's supposed to go is because I we have doubt that by the time you get to the last aligner, it will be level, so you go further than it's supposed to go, so you don't run out of aligners. It's like building in insurance. Here's a cuspid that goes about 30 degrees Further than it's supposed to go. That's an overcorrection. It corrects and then it goes back all the way back. And so that gives you extra aligners to make sure that it's where it's supposed to go. So it actually round trips. It goes out further than it comes back. And that tooth dialed right in where it was supposed to be at a, a line of 39 with no refinement necessary for that tooth in order to get that where it was supposed to go because that overcorrection stretched those ligaments. It went further. It built in insurance. Most of the time when I ask for 30 degrees, which is my favorite amount of overcorrection or rotation, it doesn't actually go 30 degrees. It might only go five degrees, but that's why it's so useful because if I had no overcorrection, it wouldn't have made its full rotation, and it would have stopped short of where it was supposed to go. Here's one more example, tooth number 10. Way out it goes, and then it comes back in after it's fully derotated and snugs right in there. So those are all examples of one tooth or single tooth overcorrection. Let me give you a couple of examples of multiple teeth overcorrection so you see also what those look like. And here's a couple of examples of that. Now this one is actually two teeth, 23 and 26, and they're gonna go way further, my favorite, 30 degrees, past where they're gonna go, and then instead of floating back in, you see that they actually jump back in. They're gonna go all the way to their correct position and then they're gonna go 30 degrees further than their correct position and then they snap back to the ideal position, why? Well, as it turns out, the left side screen in green shows where they were supposed to be in the first set of aligners. Then we found out those are very troublesome, difficult teeth and look where they were at the last set of aligners on that first refinement. Very remarkable. And so those particular teeth have to be handled with greater insurance. They have to be, have more force on them. So if you look on the left side, you'll see that that's where they look at, like at aligner 20. And then that's exactly the same position they look like at liner 33. That means that the aligner took from 20 to 33, 13 extra aligners of insurance. If the position was correct at 25, you can jump to 33. If the, if the position was correct at aligner 30, then you can jump to 33. It's just insurance that's built in so that you have greater force. I already had learned my lesson from the first set of aligners. Watch that clinch check again and you'll see those two teeth going out to correct, which is at aligner 20, and then they go way out in the liner at 33. They jump back into their position and get closed in. That's what overcorrection is all about. One last example of overcorrection is: I have here a case that had a very deep overbite, so I want to ask for more than I need. Here I'm asking for upper and lower intrusion, and the result I want looks like that. But because it was so deep, I'm going to have to ask for more in my clin check. So I ask for that. Now that's hard to persuade the technician to actually give you a final position like that, but that's overcorrection because whenever the teeth get to the position you like, you stop. So you'll never take the, the case all the way up to this, but uh, you ask for more because you have to ask for more than you need. That's the concept of overcorrection. And you, you learn over time, which of these are going to be the stubborn ones, and learn to ask for more. Okay, the last one I wanna talk about before we close is called the crest. When I talk about crest, I want you to imagine having a rubber ball in your hand, throwing it up in the air, and having a slow motion camera on it. There is a point where it goes up, and then it actually stops in midair for just a, a nanosecond, and then it turns around and comes back down. The moment that it stops at the, at the peak of that arc, we're calling the crest. And the teeth will often in, in, in this line do the same thing. They go out and then they completely derotate. And when they're completely derotated and straight, they come back in to the final position you want. Let me give you an example of a check that doesn't have that. This was a transfer case I had many years ago from Hawaii. And the doctor had tried to squeeze the teeth into position. There is a point where the teeth are about ready to go back in, but they were all crooked. So when she came to me, all the teeth were squeezed tightly and all of them very crooked. That's what she looked like when she came to see me. A huge amount of IPR had been done, but the teeth were not able to rotate because every time they tried to rotate, they were squeezed tighter and tighter against the neighbors. So I use that as a negative example. She came to me for refinement And what I did was I pushed the teeth back out, derotated them, and then brought them back in like this. I brought them out, rotated them, and then squeezed them back in. So you can't very well derotate a crooked tooth when all the neighbors are tightly squeezed against it. So I'm going to give you some good examples of understanding the crest and some bad examples. The most important point I want to make is that when you go to the crest, When you start that journey back into its final position, you have to have your teeth straight. I will ask you that several times. Are the teeth straight at the crest? Okay, here's an example where the teeth go out, they derotate, and when they turn yellow, they're all straight. Watch that again. When they go out, they rotate around and get straightened out, and they don't turn yellow until they're completely straight. So the question is, there's the crest. That's the point at which the IPR begins. Are the teeth straight at the crest? And one good way to judge that is, if you have a good crest on your round trip, they will all start IPR at the same time. The more even that is, and they're straight, the easier the case will be. Now, if I have two tenths of a millimeter to do at that point, I will never do all of it at once. I will do one-tenth of a millimeter in each of those spots and then give them another aligner or two or three. And then when those spaces have closed, it's easy to decide, am I far enough lingually? Am I still too far lingually or buccally? What do I need to do at this point? All of those options are open to you because the teeth have already gotten straight. So if you want to simplify your case, you're going to make sure that all the teeth are straight at the crest. Let me show you one more example of that. And then I'll show you a couple of negative examples. These teeth are getting ready for the crest, and watch for the yellow. There it is. Are the teeth straight? Absolutely. So there's the point in which all the teeth are straight. That's a different, slightly different case. And all of the teeth are lined up by the time I get ready to do IPR. I'm a big advocate of late IPR, and this is why. I never want to do early IPR, I never want to do it on the first, second, third, fourth, sixth, or tenth aligner. Always want that. IPR to be late because the crest makes that so easy. It's easy to access the IPR, it's easy to be delivered about it, it's easy to decide if you want less or whether you want more. Okay, here's a bad example. Out they come and then you'll see that the teeth by the time they get yellow are not straight. Watch that one again. You'll see that the teeth come out and then by the time they start to go back in they're not straight. Here's a freeze of that right there. Okay, the IPR has begun. Are the teeth straight? No, they're not. Then they have no business being pushed back lingually and having that become more of a problem. As soon as you start putting it back, the brakes go on and now you can no longer get those teeth to rotate into a straight position because they keep banging into the neighbors as they're being squished back lingually. Here's another example, not a good example, it's a bad example, and you'll see that the during the course of that you'll see that You get that flickering of the yellow. This one does it now. This one does it later. Watch again, and you'll see that there's all over the board. And at the moment where they start to go in, are they straight? Here's a freeze frame of that. No, they're not. You look at those five, you're supposed to be doing your IPR right there. Are the teeth straight? No. That means the chances of you resolving the contact between 25 and 26 is very low. The chance of you getting 26 the lock in where it's supposed to be, Almost impossible because every aligner is pushing it into a collision. Let's look at some good examples one more time. This is a crest that's just right. The IPR is all done at once. Now don't count the bicuspids because the bicuspids are in kind of a different game plan because they can be earlier or later and they're not really part of the crest. It's the anterior teeth that are part of the crest. Watch that crest, there it is. All of those yellows and the teeth are about as straight as they can get. They're kind of odd shaped teeth in some ways, and they're not very regular. So, in some cases, you're making a little judgment about the best position, but you're not doing IPR until the teeth are straight. Otherwise, you're making it hard for them ever to, to resolve. So, sort of a recap on that here's some things to watch out for. One, don't collapse the arch. You collapse the arch only when you've got really buck teeth, and the patient's got plenty of room between the upper and the lower. If they're already heading, and you're going to have a tough time squeezing that arch in without creating a posterior open bite. Build in a little extra overjet to the case. I build in at least one millimeter of uh, overjet between cuspid to cuspid on almost every case that I do so that I have wiggle room. I don't want it at the end. I want them all to be touching, but I also want them to be touching evenly. I want the back teeth and the front teeth to be touching together, not one ahead of the other. So in order to get that, I build in one millimeter most of the time. Once in a while, two millimeters if I have a really unusual circumstance that requires a little bit more. Then ask for a little more intrusion than you need. If I need two millimeters, I, uh, I, I ask for three. If I need three, I ask for five. I always ask for more than I need so that I don't run out of aligners before I run out of movement. And then watch that intrusion carefully. That's the hard one. Don't ever intrude six teeth into your teeth all at the same time. Do them incrementally. Move some, then move the others, then move the others. If you try to intrude six teeth all at the same time, your chances of having that happen all simultaneously become uh, way less predictable. And then don't get trapped into skipping the restorative when it's needed. Give the patient what's in their best interest. If you shortcut, it'll come back and haunt you. If you say to the patient, I know you can't afford veneers, I'm just going to squeeze these all tight. It'll come back to haunt you. Do Composites, if they can't do veneers, do it free if, you can't, if they can't afford to do that. If you're not willing to do it free and, and help them out, then don't help them out by doing the wrong thing by squeezing their bite tight and having a posterior open bite. Okay, my final message is don't make it so complicated. Choose the easiest way to solve the thing, not the most complicated way. Whenever I'm looking at a new patient, I'm thinking to myself, how does this work? How do I make this actually function so that the the case is not so complicated? Figure out what the mouth wants and give it to the mouth. What does the mouth really want? Does it want all the teeth to be squeezed together? Does it want the upper arch collapsed? Make your ClinChex as simple and predictable as you possibly can, figure out the easiest way to get them from A to B, not the hardest way. When I work with so many hundreds and hundreds of doctors, I often find that they've chosen the most complex way first. I'm going to suggest the exact opposite. Figure out the easiest way, figure out the simplest way, don't do the hardest way, you make it more unpredictable. I'm going to give you one last example before we close of this problem. Now, I'm going to show you a patient. Of course, I think that we should always be HIPAA compliant. We want to follow the law, and so I've made sure that I've protected the identity of the patient here so that there's no, you know, exposure of her identity. Okay, so I'm going to show you her check that that the doctor proposed. Now, look at this, and you'll notice that she's missing tooth number 12. And so we're going to take this case, and this is the check. It was given to him originally. And he had a complaint about it, and the complaint was that the midline was off between two and three millimeters. So what were his objectives? His objectives were that he wanted to straighten the patient's teeth, it happened to be his daughter, and he wanted to get the midline correct. Those were the main three things he wanted, the two things he wanted to do. That was what his goal was. But with this clean check, here's before on the left and, re- and after on the right, the midline was still off. He straightened the teeth, but he straightened the teeth mostly, but he still had the midline off. He didn't accomplish his main goal. And there was a gap between number 11 and 12 before and a gap after. So he did straighten the teeth, but he didn't reach his goal. And I pointed that out that that's not exactly what the mouth wanted. I tried to ask him, what do you think the mouth wants? It was a much easier way than the way that he proposed, the way that I just showed you. What does the mouth want? If it could have its own way, what would it do? And how can I give it what it wants? That was the question that I asked him to ask, ask. And which arch has the problem? Sometimes the doctor sees that the lower arch is the problem. It's too small. So what does he do? He shrinks the upper arch, which was not the problem there. And as he did that, he, uh, he. Uh, then I asked, am I punishing one arch for the error of the other? by punishing one arch for the arch of the other. So let's look at his original picture and see what that looks like. Here's the original photograph, and here's the clincheck from that. And they're trying to move that the way that I recommended it was that he actually creates space for the missing tooth. That's what the arch wants. It wants its tooth back. In doing that, he creates room for the lower teeth, He straightens the midline, and he gives back the missing tooth. That's what I recommended that he do. That's how that looks on the original case for the photograph, and then you'll see that when that happens, he straightens the midline right up. It seems so obvious that that would be the simplest way to do it, but then we had a very unusual conversation because apparently he didn't want to do it the easy way. He wanted to do it the difficult way. His way had all this IPR, on the bottom. That was to leave it the way it was without opening up that tube. My way had almost no IPR, a two, a two and a two over on the right side. My way got the midline lined up, but it all required just creating enough space so the arch didn't have to be collapsed. Well this is a conversation that we had then. It was kind of an unusual conversation. He says, well I could extract number five and then both sides would match. So she's already missing 12, so he proposes to take his daughter's other bicuspid out. Which I said, Well, what would that do to the overjet? And he said, Well, what would happen to the overjet is it would probably decrease the overjet. And I said, Yeah, that's correct. And if you decrease the overjet, what might that produce? And he responded, Well, I think maybe a posterior open bite. And I said, yeah, that's one way that it happens. And he said, well, he came up with a good idea that I thought was a little bit more complicated, that maybe I could also extract it two bicuspids on the bottom. I'm not making this up. And then I said, really? Are you serious? You'd extract three teeth on your daughter to correct a three millimeter midline discrepancy? So I'm hopeful that I persuaded him to go the easier way, and I'm also hopeful that I persuaded you to go the easy way. Don't make it so complicated. Figure out what the mouth wants and give it to them, and make your clean checks as simple and predictable as possible.
1: Well, thank you so much, Dr. Gates. That'll conclude the Q&A portion of our program. A couple of quick reminders. Please go to the link that's on your screen right now to take your survey and get your CE certificate. One week from today, this entire program will be archived at the Education tab on your Invisalign Doctor site. I want to thank Dr. Gates again for a great presentation, and all of you for taking time out on your Fridays to join us. Look forward to seeing you on another ASCI Extra webinar. Thank you very much.